You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey y'all. So, as we mentioned near the beginning of this episode, we had some technical difficulties. Specifically, Zoe's computer wasn't recording the first time we tried to do this, and we didn't catch it for about an hour, and we had to basically start over. We used to always make backup recordings just in case something failed, but nothing ever did, so we kind of got complacent, and we just hubristically assumed it would never happen. So naturally, it happened on a guest episode, which isn't ideal. All our previous guest episodes, we still did the backup recording just because we were being extra careful, but this time we skipped it and I guess the gremlins were waiting. There was some discussion of trying to put bits of the previous recording in with this one, but I couldn't really work out an effective way to do it without it seeming very odd. I do have the files, though, so if y'all decide you want that, I'll edit it together and put it up. It's mostly composed of... The guest and me talking about Name of the Rose, and occasionally responding to voices only we can hear since we don't have Zoe's part. If for some reason you want that, let us know. But anyway, here's the stuff we recorded after we realized the technical issue and got it sorted out. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Maniculum Podcast. (laughs) Max already losing it. Here we are. For those of you who are just joining us or are new to our community, I am Zoe and I'm here with my co-host Mac and we take weird medieval stories and teach you how to adapt them into TTRPG ideas, D&D ideas, story ideas, video game ideas, and whatever your heart desires. But today we are joined by a very special guest, Adam from the Ludo History Stream. Adam is an academic and a Twitch streamer. Right now he's streaming God of War Ragnarok and Pentiment, and that's actually how I discovered his channel. He was going through playing Pentiment, and the entire team just froze because all of a sudden we're hearing somebody talk about the text and about the characters that we had in detail, and they knew who St. Grobian was. And I turned over and I was like, I need to get this guy onto the manicula. No, I don't even know who Saint Grobian is. <laughs> well, He's we, so fun. We can oh, get I into highly that. highly recommend. Uh, but essentially, I said, okay, like, gotta have Adam on. Uh, and so for those of you who are interested, I will be joining Adam on his Ludo History stream in early January as we play through Pentiment. And details will be, of course, in our Discord. We'll put that on social media. But anyway, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Give us a rundown on who you are, what you study, what your focus of study is, and why the heck you started streaming video games. Sure. Uh, Thank you both so much for having me on. It's an absolute delight to be here. So yeah, as Zoe said, I'm Adam. I have a bachelor's degree in medieval studies, a master's degree in Viking and medieval Norse studies, and I'm currently working on a second master's degree, because I make bad decisions, in cultural heritage, specializing in sort of digital exhibition work in museums and 
fashion collections. So my broader interests are really in the reception of the medieval past and the useful medieval focusing in like the 13th and 14th centuries, Icelandic literature, eco-criticism, a bunch of stuff in that nexus. I'm also, yeah, a like part-time consistent Twitch streamer, and I have been... The channel started in 2019, but I had to take a break when the pandemic started. So, realistically, about just over two years that I've been regularly Twitch streaming. The goal of Ludo History is to be kind of bringing academic-level knowledge and methods to games to create this, like, really accessible space to explore the intersection of the past and gaming. So it started with just medieval games and then rapidly expanded to think about cultural heritage, archaeological methods, and a very wide definition of history and fantasy, with extra focus on bringing on guests, because I don't know everything. I don't pretend to know everything. As much as I try with Pentiment, I do not know everything. And so bringing on people who do have different perspectives than I do, and getting to talk about them and kind of share that expertise in this very collaborative, chill manner. Going back to your academic credentials, first, as a member of the Two Masters Degrees Club, <laughs> I agree it's a bad idea and Terrible I don't idea. advise it. My bank account will never forgive me. <laughs> second, you used the term cultural heritage when you were talking about your current work. Could you define that for the audience? Yeah, basically... Cultural heritage can be thought of as the bigger umbrella term for any time you're using the past to think about the present or the future. And so the classic example is museums, right? Museums create exhibitions, they do teaching work, but they're also trying to preserve artworks, historical artifacts indefinitely into the future. But this also includes like libraries that have rare books or manuscripts or archival material, monuments, historical fiction, historical media, basically anything you can think of that's taking information from the past or visuals from the past and using that for something in the here and now. That's how I envision cultural heritage. Some people will have much more narrow definitions, but I don't think that's fun. I don't think we get a lot by restricting ourselves. So I think of it very all-encompassingly. So examples of cultural heritage that our audience might be able to recognize are, I don't know, let's say elves, dwarves in D&D, or... Potentially, yeah. Or depictions of the Vikings in Assassin's Creed, Valhalla, or I guess any of the Assassin's Creed games could count as cultural heritage in terms of how we experience or understand the past. They absolutely do. Yeah, I think people have different opinions on this. Some people will try and restrict it to, oh, like artifacts, these like tangible objects or intangible practices sometimes. So I think what Slovakian Pear brandy just got declared by UNESCO of like heritage tradition for like the traditional brewing of, I think it's leave of it? Slovakian pear brandy is apparently cultural heritage now. Serbian folk songs are cultural heritage. Yeah. Modern Druidic worship. Yeah. The Duomo in Florence is a cultural heritage site. It's very nice. Does modern Druidic worship count? I mean, is, is there continuity? I, There's, I feel like they dubious. try very, very hard for there to be cultural continuity, but it's very difficult certainly, to establish any of that. Yeah, certainly 
Stonehenge and some of the other sites that have become focus points for modern druidic practice are cultural heritage sites in like the most strict, narrow definition of the term. For sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. So, for our poor listeners, we had recorded a whole bunch of stuff, and then I realized that my recording was not actually recording. I mean, to be fair, like, half of it was us talking about Name of the Rose. That's true. That's true. That's, hey, look, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so for for how we understand the Middle Ages, how we represent it in terms of cultural heritage plus video games and TTRPGs, diving into that, I guess for you, what are some examples of that medievalism that are done very, very well versus not done as well? Uh, the pros and cons, the pitfalls, if you will, of trying to engage in the Middle Ages as we see it in today's media. Yeah. This is a complicated topic with literal, like, 500-page books written about it, so yep. the very short and sweet version, uh, right, in terms of examples of things that do it really well, I mean, this is not just stoking your ego, but <laughs> Pentiment is a genuinely phenomenal example of how to do this work carefully, and with a lot of concern for what contemporary narratives it intersects with, yep. right? So Pentiment has a large focus on children and women being given equal voices and uh, racial and ethnic diversity, people speaking different languages, coming from different places, and being able to engage, like, really meaningfully in this tiny town. And all of that, right, it pushes the boundaries of what's historically realistic a little bit, but pushing those boundaries is fine because it's making a very wide, complicated topic accessible and understandable. Because, unfortunately, right, as much as we may look at this and go, yes, I want the 32-hour-long real-time experience of The Last Duel or something, right? The judicial proceedings that got turned into The Last Duel. I promise you, you do not want that. No. That no. would be incredibly uninteresting and wouldn't give us anything, right? We don't get anything out of doing an exact one-to-one -one recreation. Even even historical reenactments or LARPs, things like that, that are, quote-unquote, as close to accurate as possible, still generally have overall storylines. They still cut out a lot of the really shitty parts of the period yeah. that we don't want to have nowadays. Exactly, right? I mean, Hema's Hema's a lot of fun, and the, some people put a ridiculous amount of work into creating period arms, armor, and outfits for it. But at the end of the day, you beat each other up with longswords, and then you take off your helmets and get a drink. And there was no guarantee for m much of the 14th and 15th centuries that that was going to be the case, because those are very sharp objects, mm -hmm. and your injuries could be substantial. I think I might need to clarify for both myself and the audience. Is HEMA historical European martial arts? Yes, it is. There's a few, there's a few sects. There's HEMA, there's another acronym that I can't remember. The SCA, the Society for Creative Anatomy. There's that one, but there's another, like, specifically Western martial arts school, but I can't remember what it's called. Oh. I'll have to look Yeah, up. I don't remember either. There's several that all do various, like, degrees of realism. HEMA focuses a lot on, like, steel weapons mm -hmm. and steel armor. Mm -hmm. The Society for Creative Anachronism uses rattan because you're less likely to hurt yourself with 
a glorified stick of grass than you are with a metal forged weapon. Shocking. But in either case, right, they all have that same idea of that we're fundamentally plaguing, right? This is play. No different than reconstructed dance or whatever you want. You're going to beat each other up, and you're going to have a great time doing it, and then you're going to take off your armor, and you're going to go get a drink, and everything will be okay. Yep. I mean, that that's useful, right? I like that. I like that much more than I'm going to sit here in a foul-smelling, or increasingly foul-smelling court with rotting food in the thrushes, listening to legal arguments that I barely understand for the next three weeks before watching two people murder each other to death. Not quite as engaging. Nah. Nah. So when it comes to those representations, why then do you think, and we can open this up for discussion, obviously, but why then do the nitty gritty, quote unquote, realistic versions of the Middle Ages come through so much? Why are those so popular? And we're talking stuff like Game of Thrones, or I mean, there's tons of like his- yeah. historical TV shows that do this as well, particularly about the American frontier where like a woman is raped every episode, and you're like, okay, yep. at a certain point, like, chill out, you guys. Chill, yeah. By the way, audience, if you can't hear it in her tone of voice, when Zoe calls Game of Thrones historical and realistic, she's making air quotes. Yes, yeah. yeah exactly. I have thoughts. Historical disparaging. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so why why is that stuff still so popular in a lot of media today? Is this lack of education? Is this, I don't know, people who want to be racist and homophobic taking it and running with it? What are the reasons that somebody might want to depict the Middle Ages in an inaccurate but medieval way and by medieval i mean primitive or brutal or pick your synonym here primitive is also one of those words that's not very accurate i object to those Uh, being even floated as synonyms for medieval well well, that's the point that's the point yeah well i think in this particular context we can all agree very much not but you hear it in like new york times articles all the time Mm -hmm. where the word medieval gets thrown out for insert contemporary horrible thing here yeah and Um, most of the things they think are medieval are inventions of the modern era yeah not not even early modern like fully the last hundred years these are new and exciting forms of uh, ruining people's lives the medieval treatment of workers in factories excuse me yeah <laughs> yeah those totally medieval things factories yeah yes yes i mean honestly most factory workers i think would appreciate Prefer. having as many vacation days as a medieval peasant yeah mm. and hours worked too probably yeah But yeah, uh, I think to directly go to that question, I think you say still floating around, and in a lot of ways, that actually feels backwards to me. For historical media specifically, it kind of lags behind scholarship for a good long ways, because we see, right, 19th century, we see this very romanticized, pan-nationalist, kind of rehabilitation of the medieval, I don't know, Richard Wagner, and scholarship, as these start to become these own defined fields of study. And then there's this dip of people going kind of going a little bit anti-romantic 
with modernist frameworks and then rehabilitation uh, from the like 1960s onwards. And popular media lagged behind that a good long ways, right? The romanticism with like a subcurrent of like pulp romanticism persists into like the 1980s or 1990s. Uh, Tolkien does a major role here mm-hmm. in delaying this with just how aggressively romantic, capital R romantic, The Lord of the Rings is. Yep. But then it's kind of like the later 80s into the 90s that we see this like anti-romanticism start to emerge in historical media. Game of Thrones here, or rather A Song of Ice and Fire, the book version, which is oh so much better, we swear. Uh, <laughs> the TV show's really bad. I don't think the books are better. The books are certainly not more historical, contrary oh, to what no. George R. R. Martin says. True. Would you classify echoes the name of the rose within this sort of anti-romantic shift i think it foreshadows it but it belongs in its own category fair enough the name of the rose i don't think follows medievalist trends very well because most medievalist media is not created by academics very true echoes in a category Alberto echo is a prolific academic on about a half a dozen different disciplines so he's off doing his own thing in the corner and it takes a while. I think the film version reflects it a lot better than the book version Fair enough. does. Because the film version, you do start to see the anti-romantic thing, uh, whether it is a focus on it, everything being literally dark. Yep. Like, un- unintelligibly dark and uncolorful for large parts of that movie. Not all of it, but large parts of it. And the corresponding sort of implicit moral failings and violence inherent to the system. And, right, Monty Python's Holy Grail it kind of notices <laughs> the very beginning. We lost Mac, I, I, he's like gone. I went off of, like, a, a phrase that probably most people skipped over as being a quote from Monty Python. It was like, speaking of! <laughs> speaking of, that was deliberate, because Holy Grail kind of occurs before the main thrust of anti-romanticism, but definitely, like, sees it coming. Mm-hmm. And is making fun of it in a lot of ways before it even happens, right? Looking back from 2022, right, we've got so much quote-unquote Viking media in particular that's just, like, physically unpleasant to watch because it's dark and muddy and grimy and dingy. There's lots of murder, there's lots of violence, and so on. Exactly. Lovely filter And, like, Monty Python's making fun of all that stuff before it even happens. Like, decades before some of these media franchises show up and start doing the exact thing they're making fun of. Which, I'm impressed. But also, Terry Jones is a respected medievalist, and we miss him dearly. He was published on Chaucer and gave a keynote at IMC Leeds one year, and was dearly loved by the Chaucer scholars. So That's fantastic, did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Turns out, when you get uh, academics involved in creative projects, they occasionally manage to be extremely funny about it. Yeah. Yes. Very, very true. So yeah, I think that that's a very rambly way to give the short history of medievalism. But yeah, I think, in a lot of ways, it's this very contemporary thing of right, the nitty-gritty, unpleasant medievalism being much more, much more recent than we want it to be. And even though it's it was out of date with scholarship when it emerged, but it, that part really hasn't changed, and 
don't have easy answers for what do we do about it besides continuing to like find the examples of people celebrating the Middle Ages and early modernity much closer to how they were and like bringing that enthusiasm into public spaces. Yep. Which I think is something that you're doing extraordinarily well in in bringing on uh, academics onto your stream, engaging with modern culture and media. But Mac, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, like, I feel like a lot of it is a backlash against the romanticism. Not romanticism like Wordsworth, but romanticism. You know what I meant. The thing you were yeah. calling capital R romantic yeah. earlier. Because there, exactly. there's problems on both sides. Like, if you if you present the medieval period in this romanticized view then you run the risk of idealizing the past, and that that has all its own problems. Mm-hmm. Idealizing what's really not a very pleasant past for a, for a lot of significant people. Minor- exactly. minority of the time, but significant minority of the time. Right. And so people are, are, I think, naturally going to say, like, well, we shouldn't be whitewashing the medieval period. We should show it warts and all. And I think there's something to that. Like, it would be weird if you read a book about medieval Germany and everyone was just, like, totally cool with women and gay people. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be jarring. Yeah. And it's it would be possibly a bad idea to whitewash a, anything that's claiming to be a historical novel in that way. Like, you shouldn't hide that history. On the other hand, stuff like Game of Thrones doing that is completely different because it's not set on Earth. And it always yeah. baffles me why the why fantasy authors insist on including like misogyny and homophobia and and racism and all this stuff in their fantasy worlds and just going like, well, it's realistic. Like, yeah, there's an extent to which like, okay, xenophobia is always going to be a thing. You, you may as well. But like a lot of our views about gender and sexuality are either inherited from the Catholic Church on the religious side or inherited from the Roman Empire on the secular side, both of which have very strict views on gender and sexuality. And if you're setting your story in a world where neither of those things ever existed, why would they have those views? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh Sawyer had a phenomenal take about it. I was listening to his Twitch stream uh, a few weeks ago and Someone asked him about that, and he just kind of went, he laughed at them, and then went like, you're you're the one making the decisions. Yeah. It's like, at the end of the day, you're the one making the decisions, and is that, is, is that really the story you want to be telling? Like, I mean, I guess if it is, sure, go, go for it, but you don't have, you don't have to include it. You're in charge. There is no one holding a gun to your head saying the accuracy police will raid your house if you do not meet our sexual violence quota. <laughs> you're, you're the one who says that that is a thing you want in your story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And at the end of the day, right, I just agree with that take. Because in a creative project, you're the one who's in charge. And there's something to be said for historical media in Earth quote-unquote Earth, that deliberately says, yeah, the past sucked. Let's tell the past as we wanted it to be. For sure. Because those people existed, and they there are stories about queer love that can be told in a medieval setting, medievalist or historically medieval, where queer trauma is not part of it. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. There's lots of stories where it is, but it doesn't have to be. And if you want to do that, 
amazing. I will be thrilled with you for doing that because there's too many stories about the trauma. Give me some of the joy. Yes. <laughs> Amen to that. And that said, I will add that if you are a GM, for instance, or if you are a novelist, whatever, and you want to include some of those themes, do so because they provide incredibly strong pieces of conflict for stories to be told. But that said, but and this is mandatory? a major but. Well, yeah, one, they're not mandatory. And two, be aware of how you're depicting them. Because there is a major difference in a character standing up in the face of trauma and overcoming that, or standing up in the face of discrimination and overcoming that, versus just saying, oh, this is just the status quo for the world, deal with it. Yeah. I have the same take with sort of enslavement as I do with various types of racialized sexual violence. Basically, right, anything that we have classified as human rights violations and or hate crimes. Namely, those stories refuse to be background noise. There mm -hmm. are stories that a lot of creators want to be background noise, but just by the nature of the story, if you are thinking about the world complexly, about your fictional worlds complexly, they are stories that demand to be front and center when they happen, right? You can't gloss over them because there is too much at stake for the people involved and for the people at your table. Also, if you're planning on doing that, I would personally check in with your players before you do that. And be, if your players are like, please don't. Do not do it. Just don't. Give your players that chance to opt out because they don't need that trauma inflicted upon them. Adam is fully correct. I am agreeing with him. I just realized that all of my nodding wasn't coming across. <laughs> so I needed to verbalize something. Darn audio media. Yeah. This is why I stream. My camera is visible so you can see me flail. Yes. <laughs> it's very useful. Uh, I will say that this is a great example of when you can use a consent checklist on a session zero or before a game just to check in with your players. I highly, highly encourage using like consent checklists just to say like, yeah, I'm okay with this or I'm okay with this being mentioned, but not part of, you know, my character story, et cetera, et cetera. So always, always, always check in with your players when you're bringing that stuff up. So when it comes to some of the whimsy that's in these texts, particularly the text that Mac and I really, really enjoy getting into on the podcast, like two two guys ripping out a vampire's heart and then, you know, like breaking oh, open yeah. the <laughs> the ritual casting that the monk was going to do to get rid of the vampire, among other such things. Yeah. Where for you is that line of oh too much whimsy versus historical like fact finding when it comes to medieval media. For example, The Witcher, which I think hits a very, very good middle ground in terms of saying like, yeah, we're going to run with this folklore. And we're also still going to make it quote unquote, realistic. But I don't know, maybe where's your line with that? How, how do you want people to lean into that versus draw away from it? Before Adam answers, I just want to underline for everyone that Zoe just referred to ripping out someone's heart with your hands as whimsical. Thank you. Let's move on. <laughs> Duly noted. Um, but for me, like, look, I am so jaded from, like, grimdark violence, medievalism, that that line doesn't exist. Literally, go to town on it. My, like, pie-in-the-sky game that if I ever had, like, infinite resources to just go make is Medieval Icelandic Ace Attorney. Oh, Ace yes. 
Yes! Yeah, exactly. So, right, so a visual... I'm missing something. An interactive visual novel that's, like, half, like, kind of point-and-click puzzle-solving, uh, and half courtroom simulator. Oh, Ace Attorney! I know what you're talking about now. Yes, the most recent Ace Attorney games to come out were a remake of the 3DS ones, set in Victorian England slash Meiji Japan. And they were phenomenal. Uh, like, I mean, Herlock Sholmes is the most absurd character to ever be portrayed in a historically grounded, historically grounded in extreme scare quotes, uh, version of Victorian London, because he's my favorite sad boy, and I love him dearly. But also, that was a really, like, genuinely, I think, a really good history game. Yeah. But then I look at the text that I specialize in, that have these incredibly complex legal disputes that may or may not involve suing ghosts. Thank you, Erbege Saga. And I'm like, this is perfect. Yep. Literally, why why has no one made this game yet? Because that extremely sort of borderline goofy levels of whimsy and playfulness fits with this like world conception really well. Yeah, I mean the result of the law of the legal feud is everyone murders each other. That's pretty That's typical of the sagas. It's an Icelandic saga. There's only so far we can bend that. But there's also so much playfulness and just silliness and jokes that you could make like this almost absurdist historical game and have it be right in line with medieval texts. And it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. Quote unquote grounded. Yep. Portray the world as medieval people imagined it. And medieval people imagined this world in the goofiest ways. Like, there's one saga where, oh, I don't remember its name, but a guy walks into a forest in Germany, comes out into a clearing, is tired, takes a nap. He wakes up to see a Indian prince riding a horse, riding a magic carpet, flying towards him. Is this one of the for, normal, for, for old sagas? It's one of the Ritter... I think it's, oh. I think it's one of the Ritter Saga. I that think it's Victor sense. Saga or Glaufus. Okay. That's the name of it. Uh, I remembered its name eventually. For the listeners, the uh, Ritter, Ritter, Ritter Sagas... I can't say the, these exactly. words. Are Icelandic adaptations of the chivalric romance genre. Oh, I love those. Exactly. Th- this one's an Icelandic invention based on the sort of French models that were introduced what, 30, 40 years earlier? They're bad insane. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. I love them. But yeah, right, he walks through a field, he gets tired, he takes a nap, and then there is a guy riding a horse, riding a flying carpet, flying over the field that the guy had previously walked through. And the saga author says that exact phrase repeatedly. And it is just the most, like, goofy visual I could possibly think I of. I didn't even process that the first time you said that, that, he's, <laughs> that the horse is on top of the carpet, and the guy is on top of the Correct. horse. Correct. That's why he's repeating yes. it <laughs> in the saga, to make sure you catch it. It's perfect, but that is objectively a goofy mental image. Oh, yeah. And if you put that in a cutscene, I'd love it. 100%. 100%. And I think that's such a great take on... I suppose, a different version, quote unquote, of medievalism that we haven't seen before. We've had our romantic, you know, medievalism phase. We've had our grimdark medievalism phase. And I think it's about time for some absurdist, whimsy medievalism. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I think there are topics within the Middle Ages where this would be just like, don't, don't go. Totally inappropriate. Exactly. 
absurdist legal case involving the death of a child, you're hard now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do not do that, even if you're trying the pig for the murder. Don't, don't do that. I think we talked about a few of those on our Animal Trials episode. I think we did, which... I'll say again, if you're looking for a very interesting medievalist adaptation of these animal trials, you should watch The Advocate. It's also known as The Hour of the Pig. It stars What's-His-Face, the guy who plays Darcy in the first Pride and Prejudice. I can't remember his name. Is Colin Firth? Yes. Pride and Prejudice, or is it different? It's Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Yep. <laughs> it's, it, it is a rather absurdist as well. And warning, warning, warning. It does do a terrible job of depicting the Romani, and there are racial tensions there, and it's very much like, ah, yeah, she's going to do the little dancey thing in the court. So, warnings about that, but it is a very good exercise in, you know, taking a look at how these stereotypes were depicted in probably the early 90s-ish. And it does depict the animal trial, which is interesting in of itself. Exactly. But on the same thing of racial and ethnic tensions, right? You know, if you're telling a story about those, maybe tone down the absurdism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jewish pogroms do not, or anti-Jewish pogroms, I should say, uh, do not turn into whimsy well. They're atrocities that are like proto-genocides. They do not belong anywhere near absurdist whimsy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. They're just as medieval as goofy, dumb Book of Hours marginalia that make up all of my Twitch streams emails. And I I think with that said, that's something that a lot of medieval, quote unquote, historical games, fiction, media, what have you, even tentatively going into the realm of fantasy, fails to remember is that the medieval period, I mean, first of all, it spans hundreds of years, which a lot of people don't realize or they're not conscious of. And then second off, Everybody was living their own life, and it had great moments, terrible moments, whimsical moments. There were different periods where all of this was going on at the same time. And of course, when you're dealing with media, you're going to have themes, motifs. You're not going to be able to show necessarily all of these things across the board. And I think that's something that a lot of people tend to forget when it comes to consuming such media, but also... I would argue that there's some responsibility that needs to be put onto whoever's depicting that sort of thing, such as the showrunners for Game of Thrones or Martin himself or Echo or for us working on Pentiment, it was something we're very, very conscious of is Mm -hmm. how do we depict these things given that these were people living incredibly complex, rich lives. I think there's also something of an impulse for people who like, who believe in progress to go like, oh. all right, well, if things are bad for the working class now, obviously they were much worse 500 years ago. So we have to really play that up. But obviously there's much more complexity to it. Yep, exactly. Though I, I still, right, even though working relatively manual labor for my job that pays the bills, I wouldn't want to switch places with medieval peasant. Absolutely, absolutely not. Right. I'd be right. tempted to. They've got good job security. <laughs> they do up until the moment while Tyler says, hey, let's revolt, and then you get executed for attempting to burn the manor house records. I'm, I'm going to be honest, going out in Watt Tyler's peasant revolt would be my ideal, like, way to go. You know, respect. You know, you, you also aspire to be a, a hermit, Max, so... 
I do. That's another <laughs> thing I, I, I miss about the Middle Ages is that Anchorite was like just a valid career choice. Like you could just do that. That go like you know what yeah. my job is. I'm going to lock myself in a little room and no one's allowed to come bother me. And that's it. The end. That's my the career. End. Bring me food. Yep. Yep. And. To that point, funnily enough, I do want to mention that a lot of Renaissance and Enlightenment writers were already starting the quote-unquote Dark Ages smear campaign on the Middle Ages, even just coming out of it. Petrarch, my beloved, <laughs> I will never forget you. <laughs> <laughs> like, beloved. Even though he's saying his own present is, a, is the Dark Ages, he's writing early enough that everyone looks at him and goes, ah, yes, the 14th century. Yeah, yes, of course. The pinnacle of the Dark Ages. <sighs> frustrating, frustrating. Uh, that actually links to something that we kind of alluded to before is that people think of the dark ages as being very provincial and highly local but in actual fact people traveled a lot more than we than we think of i mean not just like pilgrimages and not just like people going to war but like just moving around like it was a thing that happened and yeah. I believe that I've seen screenshots that in Pentiment, you've included an Ethiopian monk in Bavaria. Yes. He's such a bro. <laughs> oh, I love him so we much. Love, we love Sebat. He's fantastic. Yeah, um, Pentiment includes several unique individuals that are not local to Bavaria. We have, you haven't gotten there yet, I don't think, but a mute, like, minstrel, a lute player. We have Brother Sebot, who is on a pilgrimage from Rome. He's one of the, part of the Ethiopian church in Rome. We have the saint, actually, of Tassing, who is St. Moritz, who is a black man who was a Roman soldier before he became a saint. So that was something that in, in the design we very explicitly and carefully wanted to include. We have characters of different sexualities, different races, different outlooks. Because all of those Vox things. Love, my beloved. <laughs> oh yes, we have we have Voxlov, who is um, our our local heretic, and he has some very very strange ideas. I had a lot of fun writing those conversations. Is there any chance he's a Cathar? No, no. But one of the one of the brothers has some connections to the Cathars. I love the Cathars. I just like Perfect. them being in everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Voxlov had a lot of inspiration from the cheese and the worms, which Adam, I know you're familiar yeah. with, but, um, I, I smelled it. Yep. I could, I could detect that from a uh, ways away, mm -hmm. but also he's a Romani and that's right. Adding that extra layer was super cool to see. Yeah. Cause that was something that's not in the, the local heresy arc in cheese and the worms mm -hmm. is a local born and raised a local and just off everybody. By insisting that God is a worm crawling through the world of the cheese. Yep. I've got to the cheese that. of the world. That's, on, that's been on my bookshelf for like a year. It's, it's hilarious. so good. Every time I visit it, I'm amazed. Both at, you know, the archival material recording that. And also how, like, well Ginsburg tells that story. It's great. There's also, like, some of the inspiration from Vaxlov's conversations was also from several recorded Inquisition documents about different local heresies that people had, which I had a lot of fun reading because they dug into a lot of the folklore stuff that I'd never read before in terms of like, oh yeah, like all the animals are God's creatures except for the wolves. The wolves are from Satan because they eat our sheep. And this guy, he, like, this was his personal belief. And he's like, I'm sticking by it. 
And then the Inquisitor came in, oh. and he's like, you gotta recant that, buddy. It's not, it's not gonna go over well for you. And so he's like, okay, wolves are God's creatures too. And then he went on his way, and that was the end of it. But yeah, there were there were some very interesting, interesting things there. So again, like with that whimsy, that stuff you could include mm-hmm. in a darker campaign or a lighthearted campaign. And it's just, it's one of those neutral things that's just odd that feels fun that you can play with anyway. 100%, right? It doesn't have to all be like weird murder cults. I was playing A Plague Tale Requiem, and that game is very good. That game is very dark. Mm-hmm. It's content warning for like a million different things in there. But there was a great moment where we went to this island, and there was an amazing cult that was definitely heresy. And I was just like, I was so curious. And then it was like, you you hammerized, like failing to understand, uh, like, 6th century Byzantine site in off the coast of France. Because that, this game uh, does have some interesting interpretations of the Black Death and the Plague of Justinian. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but then it turned into a murder cult, because it turned out that they thought that they were going to give birth to someone who would conquer the world and were willing to do murder about it. Interesting. And that made, it made me sad. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a, a, a big tendency when using historical texts, frameworks, references to sort of jump the shark, if you will, and go so yep. far past something that is inherently interesting, like misunderstanding or reinterpreting this heresy or that heresy or this text or that text or whatever, and then being like, oh, and therefore, you know, insert catastrophe here. When I think from a storytelling perspective, you don't have to have a world ending catastrophe to have a compelling story. Yeah. So I don't know, something interesting there for GMs to play with. I have more, have more weird heresies. Uh, DM tip number 730 something. Just more heresy. Street smarts, more heresy. (laughs) In defense of the murder cults, like, it's got to be said that there have been a lot of times out there where some church or other has decided, Jesus loves you and we're going to do some murders about it. <sighs> I just, Th- this is true, but it, Orthodox, not capital Orthodox, as in non-heretical church denominations decide that at least as much as heretical. I mean, I'm mostly not <laughs> them, honestly. The, the, yeah, the cults exactly. are more often the ones getting murdered. That's true. Exactly. That's very, very true. Historically, especially. Okay, so sort of pivoting on this topic a little bit. Right, this was originally about, like, cultural communication. Eh, (laughs) Everything goes back to death cults, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love your joint enthusiasm on that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Look, how how much Proto-Indo-European comparative religion do we want to bring into this chat? I think think not enough. Oh, no. So pivoting a little bit, because when I was, like, digging into, like, what text can we reference? What's the scholarship on this right now? A lot of it Oh, I really thought we were going to start talking about Manu and Yimo and the first priest killing the first king and all that. Oh, Lord, no. (laughs) It is too late for that. (laughs) <laughs> but a, a lot of the text, the, the academic text that I found on this was very academic in nature, but also in subject, it was very educational in nature. It was like, here's how we can use video games in education to teach people about history. Here's how we use it in the classroom. And a lot of it was about using this in the classroom. And I, I talked about this a little earlier. I don't remember if it got caught on the recording or not, but... Not everything has to be educational. Some things can be educational and entertainment at the same time. It doesn't always have to be in a classroom. So sort of going off of that, 
from a sort of streaming entertainment perspective, because we're we're three individuals who love academia and love doing this stuff for academia's sake, but we're also content creators. We're also people who are interested in this for an entertainment sake and riffing off of it. And not, you know, it doesn't always have to be accurate. We can just have fun with this stuff. So where do you think academia is sort of missing the mark here? And I know you, you Adam, had something you wanted to, to bring up sort of on this topic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I've have been like doing professional academia research and writing on historical game studies since late 2018. So actually just earlier this year, I finally had my first article get published on exactly this topic. Congratulations. That's a big deal in academic circles. It's a, it's a big deal. Uh, it was going to be my second one except peer review help. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yeah, so... But yeah, right, that article basically explores, right, a lot of theoretical discourse theory perspectives as to why does the idea of this academic ideal of making the game that makes an academically rigorous historical argument... Like, why has no one succeeded in doing That's that? That's a very good question. The answer is because it doesn't make sense as a framework. There's a few different reasons I explore in that article for that, but ultimately I conclude, right, there's just, making games is so complex, and making, like, richly rendered worlds is such a complex, demanding process with so many voices, and such an incentive structure that says, hey, we have to, like, make money? You have to move copies in order for the argument to have any impact, and it's just not a skill set that translates between really careful, close-reading analysis and interpretation and portraying that in a richly rendered, living, interactive world. Mm -hmm. Those are fundamentally two different, like, discursive acts that are so unrelated that it's not able to do that. And so what I proposed instead was more people should Twitch stream. This may or may not be shilling for my own Twitch stream. (laughs) I got published for it. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, But right, what I argue, though, is that the streamer occupies this sort of, like, weird middle ground where there's all these popular tropes and signs and little snippets of what is the medieval. Whether that's, like, dirt and grime, horned helmets, what have you, uh, little snippets that float around the internet about, like, how many days off peasants have. Insert your infinitely long list here. And you have academic discourses. And somewhere in between those, right, a historical game is combining some of them. Yes. It's using familiar signs, right? God of War Ragnarok has berserker fights, and the berserkers have horned helmets, even though the rest of the game is being quite careful about not doing that. We can't escape them. (laughs) I'm sorry, are you implying that horned helmets aren't historically accurate? I'm shocked. The first thing I'm doing, if I'm getting a time machine, is I'm going back and talk to Sterkla Thorlarson. The second thing I'm doing is that I'm punching Carl Emil Deppler in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we can't escape those signs. It's fine. But games themselves occupy this middle ground where they're combining both of those things. What, like, media criticism and the act of, like, taking games seriously in public with academic frameworks and training but not doing academia Mm -hmm. does is the exact same thing, right? It's doing a, like, hybrid interpretive work where it's taking the game seriously on its own terms and asking not what is it doing right, what is it doing wrong, 
but rather, what's it doing interesting, and what can we learn from this? And that intersects with classroom use, right? A lot of the things that work in classrooms also work on Twitch trips. As it turns out, it still is, in some way, intended to be educational, because you've got to engage with those tropes. But... It's doing that in a way that is allowed to be, like, really process-based and really fun and take a really expansive idea of what is a historical game, right? It's not all Paradox Interactive games or Assassin's Creed, right? I played Elden Ring for, like, 12 weeks and had some really productive conversations about a game that doesn't pretend to be historical in in any way, shape, or form, but still has a lot of resonances with historical material. Oh, absolutely. Because oh, there's so much. Anything we create is going to have resonance with something of our present or past. Exactly, and so the job is to like locate those resonances and draw them out, and like have fun drawing that out. Because I think the big thing for a lot of people still is history is the thing you learn in high school. Mm-hmm. It's not fun unless you have an amazing teacher. And there are amazing teachers. God like, bless them. There are people who are doing incredibly cool classroom work, and I'm grateful that they're publishing their experiences and their handbooks about that. But for people who don't have that experience, right, you can draw them in to at least some extent by finding where they're at and being like, hey, here's some cool stuff. Let's be, let's be passionate and curious about that and encourage that curiosity. And it seems like a lot of people like genuinely find that engaging and enjoyable to watch, in addition to maybe learning something out of it. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot to be said for the approach that it sounds like you're kind of alluding to, where instead of trying to like bring video games into the classroom, you're bringing elements of the classroom into your video game consumption. Yeah, uh, certainly some of it, right? I'm, ne- I'm not assigning homework. You don't have to do, you don't have to do 54 pages of reading before the next class. Read happens. the cheese and the worms. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, studies show homework doesn't help with learning anyway. Uh-huh. Exactly. But right, I might spend my time instead of researching, making a conspiracy board, uh, for Pentiment because that's going to be funny. Was oh, that what that is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got a bunch of, like, sticky notes and red ribbon uh, behind me. You can't see it on camera because cameras aren't getting recorded. But I do. Uh, but yeah, that's Pentiment Conspiracy Boarding. Because I literally asked them, right, I could do research. I could make a conspiracy board. Which you want. And it was universal chat said conspiracy board. Because it's cooler. It's way cooler. Everyone wants to make a yeah. conspiracy board. Exactly. And I can do the research live. I can pull up Jay's door and have Josh Sawyer tweet about it. That's fine. The conspiracy board requires off-camera work, but it's something that pays off by, like, being a good meme. Oh, yeah. That, in part, is why, like, sort of, not to overburden the idea, but sort of that bringing the classroom into the game or into the stream is why we had that glossary in Pentiment, is to, like, hey, I don't know what an imperial deet is. Like, what is that? Because that's important cultural stuff that is going to impact the plot. And so when you start making things matter to your players, then they're going to learn. They're going to pick up on that stuff. And I think that's something that you can use as a dungeon master if you're really passionate about, I don't know, currencies and you want to include medieval currency in your game, if you make it matter as a plot point, now don't overburden it, obviously, but if you make it matter as a plot point, your players are going to pick up on that and they're going to get interested. And I think to your point, Adam, where you're talking about 
you know, finding those resonances. I got so excited when I heard the word scald in The Witcher 3, because I knew what that was. And so I could, yeah. I sat upright and I was like, oh, I know what that is. I Historically, I know what that is. But it deepened my appreciation of the game because I had outside historical context that helped me understand the world better. And so I think that's one way to, one, create better games, whether you're a DM or whether you're a novelist or whether you're creating video games. When you can find touchstones and resonances that match both our world and the world you're creating, and if you can pull on those threads, then you can reward players who, one, already understand what that stuff is, and two, reward players for learning about that and deepening their culture, deepening their appreciation of both the game and the world that you've created, but also our world and our understanding. And I think in doing that, to, you know, before I get off my little pulpit here, I think that's one way that we can start to create a lot of empathy for different perspectives. Yeah. Whether, you know, whether I, it's... I 100% agree. Actually, a fun example from my stream, because there is a point, right, where if the media doesn't have that effort put in, there's nothing you can do to salvage yeah. it. Uh, I tried. Amazon released a massive multiplayer online game called New World. As the name implies, it's set in definitely not America, we promise, <laughs> in the 16th, 16th and 17th century. But the game is so for lack of a better word, like, uninspired. Shallow. That I brought I brought a bunch of people on, and we had a great time. It actually did really poorly, because everyone lost interest in that piece of media so quickly that like, the most common piece of feedback I got from it was, I loved this idea. Could you do it with a better game? Oh, gosh. <laughs> did you say like, They're I making mean, games fair. now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they've, they've cancelled two games. No. They're not doing very well. Yeah, uh, it's it's not great. Uh, the developers w who made the MMO mostly had done mobile games before that, which is not a good look. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for them, and no sympathy for the uh, institutional culture that resulted in it. You know, maybe that's the problem. It does seem like the kind of institutional culture that would destroy your soul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, and uh, sure was uh, not only the worker souls, but my soul playing it. Uh, and I think everyone, I mean, look, it's an incredible story. It's bad history, but it's an incredible story. But uh, I had an archaeologist, uh, Dr. Bill Farley, uh, who also makes content on YouTube, uh, Archaeology Tube, on, and we found a gigantic granite, granite aqueduct with a side quest uh, where they did chemical analysis and weathering analysis on the stone of the aqueduct that runs through a bog to decide that it was constructed 12 million years ago. Huh. Was that some kind of verbal no. typo where you accidentally added several zeros to that number? <laughs> um... If they hadn't used the word million, I would have assumed it was a typo. But no, it wasn't a string of zeros. They they fully said one, two, space, million. Wow. And, um, yeah, uh, it shouldn't need saying Bill say it anyway. No, none of that. The, the... Uh, Erosion? Chemical, the chemical analysis they used was not invented until the 1960s. The weathering analysis doesn't work on 
constructed materials because it has to be in situ to do any sort of like stratigraphic or sort of rock layer analysis. Without precise knowledge of weather conditions over the past 12 million years, you can't get a consistent rate of weathering. And also, it's in a bog, and it is a 35-foot-tall stone structure. Guess where it is after 12 million years? Underwater? Underneath the bog. Yeah. (laughs) Oof. That's rough. So, yeah, uh, that that should tell you something about what happens when the media doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, the world ends up feeling implausible. I was on board until you said 12 million. I was like, oh, a game where you do chemical and weather analysis on, like, archaeological <laughs> ruins? Oh. I want to play that. Oh, what, what we actually did was kill a bunch of skeletons that we could have done radiocarbon dating on. Oh. In order to pick up samples of rubble that fell off this aqueduct. And then they did magic and told us how old it was. Oh my gosh. Make sure your game design matches up with your storyline. That's the lesson to be learned there. Or just actually call the, quote, science magic and get it over with. Yeah, that too. So also do that. Like with, With all of that said, I think this makes a very, very good argument in case any of our listeners were sort of wondering or caught up like, okay, so why the hell make anything historical in the first place? Why reference this at all? Like, why does any of this matter? I think... The large answer here that Adam just elucidated was because it makes better stories. Just even if you don't care about educating your players on any of this, it makes better stories and it makes better entertainment. So whether or not you care about this from a highbrow perspective or a lowbrow perspective, and those are stupid terms anyway, I guess from an academic perspective to an entertainment perspective and just having fun, caring about what is being depicted and how it's being depicted, especially when it comes to, for instance, looking at medieval studies, you can create better stories by referencing and understanding what you're pulling from and what those cultural touchstones and resonances, as Adam said, are. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite things to tell people right when I start a new game is, right, I don't care if this game gets things right or wrong. I care if it does something interesting. Right, because this is a fundamentally a playful medium, and luckily Academia, kind of about 10 years ago, had this revelation of going, huh, maybe just like evaluating a game whether or not it got something right is not a very useful metric. Now, historical rigor has a place. We've agreed on that as well. But seeing why you're making the choices you're making, and right, seeing that thought process, and seeing what interesting arguments and interesting stories come out of that is really like what makes this work mm-hmm. it's why i keep doing what i do because i love being delighted when a game does something interesting this, i don't care if i can sure someone might redeem a nitpick and i have to go okay so Technically speaking, <laughs> the language they're using is way too contemporary for this. They should probably be speaking like XYZ thing. Whatever, that's that's all in good fun. But on the high level, I'm going to enjoy your game. If you're making something interesting and you're using the historical material in a way that I haven't seen before. Yeah, just try. That's super fun. Yeah, and play with it, right? I mean, right? my Heritage Studies perspective says that this is all usable histories, right? The entire point uh, for an entertainment purpose of the past is that you can use it for the present. And given that we have so much cool material and so many fun stories and so many weird texts, 
why not why not play with them and just see what happens yeah i'll have a good time you'll have a good time we get more things to talk about on podcasts <laughs> everybody wins absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. i have a question yeah have they figured out how to put footnotes in video games yet because i feel like that would help a lot with historical inaccuracies yeah Yes, they like almost sort of have. So Paradox kind of uh, leads the charge on this with having tooltips of just you highlight a text and you hover over it and it creates another box that'll tell you about the thing and will link into another tooltip, into <laughs> another tooltip, into a third tooltip, and it's a bit too much. I don't like Paradox games. Uh, my brain sees 500 words of text on a computer screen and I'm just like, no, no thank you. <laughs> but, you know. Pentiment took that lesson and was like, yeah, let's do that. Here's a term you've never seen before. Here's our glossary definition. So they, they gloss their own game. And I know you have a bibliography at the, in the credits. And if every game could put a bibliography in the credits of just some of the stuff oh, you yeah. want, I don't need all of it. I just want some of it. I'd be absolutely thrilled. Uh, Assassin's Creed, uh, the Assassin's Creed Discovery Tours also do this with having, oh, you walk into a thing, you click on the button, here's a pop-up that describes what this thing is with some um, actual images of the site or artifact or whatever. Sometimes those riots are extremely good, sometimes I think they're a bit questionable, but... Right, they get incredible scholars on, right? Uh, they got, for the Assassin's Creed Valhalla one, they got, uh, Al- uh, Sue Brunig from the British Museum to, like, do a lot of the, right, sort of arms and armor stuff, mm-hmm. as well as design entire armor sets. So it's like, you know, she knows better than I do. <laughs> I can look at that, I can look at that and go, yeah, you you know. They got one of the curators for the British Library's uh, Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms. That's exhibit. cool. Well, I don't love that term. Well, I don't love the way they titled that. Uh, right. The exhibition itself I think that's is phenomenal. Yeah, at this point. And thank God. I keep slipping yeah, up and uh, saying it, but I'm trying to train myself out of it. Yeah, it's 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 so yeah. entrenched as a term, so we're working on it. Yeah, lovely. Uh, Dr. Mary Rambrinolm and Dr. Eric White just had a recent article that is phenomenal about it, so highly recommend that for if you need some light academic reading. <laughs> we'll cite it. <laughs> But yeah. With that, I was I was going to jump on and say, we've got a bibliography. Is that why you were flailing when I asked that question? Yes, I was very excited because I spent so many hours correcting all of Josh's citations from his Chicago, APA, whatever, into MLA. I spent oh, time you, doing you're that. You're an MLA person. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but um I'm a Chicago I'm a Chicago style by preference, uh APA by force. Uh, <laughs> I actually like Chicago style better too. I think that that's totally are than fair. Sh- Chicago 16 was bad, but they fixed it, so... <laughs> See, Trinity had a weird way of doing it, where ultimately it was, hey, as long as it's consistent, we don't care. And I was like, okay, yeah. sure, whatever. But we also have an Italian hand gesture consultant for Pentiment, and I yes. just want to highlight that, because we wanted to make sure that we were using the proper hand gestures at the right times, and we didn't have anyone on the team who knew, so we hired someone... <laughs> I mean, we appreciate the dedication to the craft right now. So that was was fun. So, okay, speaking of doing this research, I think one of the fun questions that we had was lessons learned of doing research in the public view. Yeah. Um, So traditionally in academia, right, the traditional thing in academia, if you're giving a public talk, never Google something live. 
right if you're giving a public talk as an academic where you're being paid you can have the books on hand you can flip through a book and that's fine but never google something live on twitch you're good go ahead I recommend making sure you've got the capture set up in advance so you don't accidentally click onto a page you're not supposed to. But do feel free to, like, do that live and just kind of talk yes. through it. In this case, just keep talking. It's fully, like, keep talking and nobody explodes, but keep talking and nobody gets bored. Where you can't read a JSTOR article in 32 seconds live on the yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. But you can't click onto that, and I can be talking about it and go like, okay, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm looking at. I can read the abstract, this is definitely possible, we're going to control F for relevant, the most relevant term, we're going to quick C, I'm going to skim this paragraph, see if there's anything, if there's not, we're moving yeah, on. good to go. This is not how, this is not how this works in academia, <laughs> where I would be reading all those things for at least probably 20 to 30 minutes. You gotta accelerate that process, but it's totally fine to be focused on the process. And just talk your way through it. You don't have to have a thought when you start. You're gonna find a thought when you end. Yep. And it will theoretically work. If you know something's gonna come up, uh, I actually have a dedicated page just open in Firefox here that has a empty Google Doc, a digitization of a 15th century manuscript that uh, has like a compound zodiac symbol that is just like a weird monkey playing a scorpion as a violin using a snake as its bow. Sounds about right. Uh, Actually, I think it's a lobster, not a scorpion, but close enough. Uh, I've got Pentiment's reading list that was publicized on Xbox. I've got a Twitter post of a beautifully chunky, like, 400-page Incunabula. Nice. I've got a picture of a Dutch print of Mulay Ahmad. I've got a like webpage on Martin Luther's comments on Jewish people, i.e. rampant anti-Semitism hours, because I know that'll be relevant eventually. Right on Pentiment, I know that's going to become relevant soon, TM. I don't know when, but I know it'll be soon. Don't spoil oh, it. Oh, I will. And Not saying a word. But I've got it there because I know it's coming. And if I have that page ready, I don't need to pull it up. I don't need to try and locate a good source if I've done that work in advance. So we can focus on, oh yeah, here's our evidence. Let's focus on constructing an argument. Laying out the analysis. Making all that happen in a very condensed form of what I do when actually doing academic research. When you started that, I thought this was it was going to go in a direction of uh, don't Google something live because Google will autofill it with something terrible. But it ended up being about professionalism. So I feel like that's better. <laughs> I mean, yes, but right, the number of clips of someone of a big streamer accidentally clicking into Twitter and Twitter auto-refreshing to be an image that you don't necessarily want on screen because your search history should not be public information. Oh. If if you're going for respectability, don't mm-hmm. do that. It makes for good content. I will say it makes for amazing You'll content, definitely and go everyone viral. will clip it and watch it. But it depends on what the goal is, right? If the goal is just hang out, have a good time, not as important. If the goal is to do research live and to try and like figure out what threads a game is trying to pull on, the more you can do in advance, the better you are. But don't be don't be afraid about just. Needing to do mm-hmm. it live, because that's fine. That's actually, yeah. actually one of the good things about this medium, is when we need to stop and Google something, I just edit it out later. Exactly. 
Well, yeah. Well, that or we will include future Mac and future Zoe. So if there's something that we don't remember offhand and we want to keep the conversation going, we will make a note and research it later and then come back in and say, hey, it's future Zoe. Here's the note that I wanted to put in at the right time. I like to think of them as audio footnotes. Yeah, I like that. Audio footnotes. I like that. I, I like that. Uh, right, but on the rare occasion I get around to editing anything for YouTube, I do the same thing. But I'll often do text notes. If I flub something in the script and catch it later, throw a text yep. note up. You can't do that live. Turns out the boon and bane of doing it live is that there are no second no, takes. No, definitely not. You botched. You botched something. It is now botched. You just got to backpedal and accept it. But I think the benefits are worth it. Right? Like, this sounds really scary, and like, oh, there's so much pressure to have done the work in advance. But no, there isn't. Because, right, one of the things that is awesome about my community is I've got a channel point command. So as you watch on Twitch, you accumulate channel points. Uh, they can spend for various rewards. The most expensive one is they're going to throw a topic at me related to the game, and I'm going to research it live. That's, that's, I've turned that into content. And so, I don't know, they can look at God of War Ragnarok and go, hey, talk about Fat Thor for the next 15 minutes. And they're like, we're talking about Fat Thor for the next 15 minutes. Let's pull up some things. Let's just start writing in a Google Doc. And it'll become a really interesting argument by the end of it. So, I don't know, there was, a, as an example that's actually occurred, like, there was one about, oh, why are wolves always enemies in video games? Ooh. Good question. It's because the devil made them. <laughs> it's because the devil <laughs> made course. them, obviously. But right, was talking, right, so talking about, you know, wolves have historically been very, perceived of very badly, but that is no longer, like, scientifically true. And also, we no longer live in an agricultural society where wolves pose a threat to your ability to survive the winter because they ate mm-hmm. your sheep. So why do we still hate wolves? I don't remember what I actually concluded. I've got a like folder of Google Docs somewhere with everything I've ever done for this. I mean, is there an answer but, besides just momentum? I would say a lot of media. Uh, some of some of its momentum. Well, let's see if I've got that located around somewhere. I can answer this question for spiders, actually. Giant Ooh, spiders it. are and this is sort of folklorish in its nature, but Giant spiders are typically enemies, particularly in stuff like Final Fantasy or Skyrim or whatever, because Tolkien created them as big enemies. Well, obviously, Mac. But hang on, I'm not done. Because he was once bitten by a spider when he was a kid, and it was like a really fat, big spider, and so he was terrified of spiders. And so he forever immortalized that in his fiction. Wait, that's kind of amazing. So the reason there are so many giant spiders in fantasy is because a regular spider once bit Tolkien? Yep. (laughs) Ta-da! I kind of love that. (laughs) Actually, I, I adore There's that. your Tolkien tally for the day. <laughs> hey, we've got to have it. Okay, yeah, I can't find the Google Doc for wolves specifically, but it doesn't super matter. Uh, right, I've got like 15 docs at this point of just various things, right? I think we did one where I was like, oh yeah, let's look at that, like, ruined bridge in Elden Ring in like the first area. And it was like, okay, yeah, here's some different perspectives on it. Here's some different, like, thought processes. We did some on, like, Age of Empires 4, and what are, what's the weird nonsense it's doing? But, right, that's all. I don't know what that's going to look like ahead of right. time. And so they throw something at me, and I get to just spitball. And that's super fun. It gives me a lot of really fun topics by the end of it. So it creates more things for me to, like, 
come back to later, but it's something they have actually found really enjoyable. I think the most fun version of that was when we made an entire stream where I broke out the International Council of Museums Code of Ethics. <laughs> and we went, we, cause the game Blackhaven has a very garbage historical society as the like main sort of semi-visible antagonist of the entire game. And so we broke out the Icon Code of Ethics and we went point by point. That is amazing. And yeah, it's, people had a great time in that stream. Which I didn't expect because I was looking at a PDF and a Google Doc for like 90% of the stream. I think people like learning about stuff in general, and people like it when experts go off about things that they're really interested in. I, I think that's exactly it. When you can tie that into something that they're already engaged with, like video games, it's just a perfect match. Yeah. Uh, right. Not every game is going to be a winner. Uh, sometimes you get people who are super excited about the game, and you're super excited about the game, and then people don't yeah. turn up. That's content creation for you, right? Sometimes the episodes just don't yeah. do so hot. It's fine. Don't get discouraged. The thing is, right, the people who do show up are going to have a great time, and they're going to actually right, be really appreciative that you're going that extra length. And so it's a worthwhile, fun thing to do, to just be enthusiastic together about your media choice. And if you play it, someone's gonna come. It may not be a lot of people, especially if you're just starting out trying to do things on the internet. It's not gonna be a lot of people. You're not gonna make a living off of this immediately. Nope. <laughs> you're not Alpharad. Don't try. Don't expect that. But be enthusiastic, and whatever that means, however much like live research breaking the bounds of what's acceptable acad academic research you do, that's okay. That's all okay. Do the best you can, and have fun with it, and people will show up and be appreciative. We are close to hitting that three-hour mark. Then you are required to tell us that story about your research, because I saw that note. Oh, this right. one. So, <laughs> there's a there's uh -huh. a good short one that I have, uh, because I, I did my dissertation on magic and folklore and that sort of thing, and my very lovely Irish roommates that I was living with at the time. They were fantastic and very traditional Christians. And one of them came up to me and was very, very concerned. And she said, Zoe, I love you, but um, just please, if you're, don't do witchcraft in the house, please. Like, if you're going to do witchcraft, like, just, just, I know we're in quarantine, but like, can you go in the yard or, or something? And <laughs> God bless her. I love her to death. I was like, no, no, Li Lizzie, hang on. <laughs> I'm not doing witchcraft in that. I'm not doing witchcraft. I'm researching the with, with the witchcraft. I'm not doing the, the witchcraft. And, you know, I had to slowly close my laptop behind me that had, like, one of the, you know, necromantic circles on it. <laughs> uh, there, there was that instance. And then the other one that I always remember was my freshman year. We had to memorize Cadman's hymn. Which is the old, like an old English hymn, uh, yeah. that sort of thing. It's it's good Christian text. It is. It's it's mm -hmm. you know thanking the Lord for creating the heavens and the earth and so on. But here's the thing: I was in the process of memorizing this, and I went in to take a shower in one of the communal showers, and I was muttering this underneath my breath, <laughs> and the showers were empty, and I was like, this is fine, I can practice. I didn't hear the door open, so I'm like, doing this over and over, and the next thing I hear is just, holy 
and running <laughs> out of the out of the bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I should have expected well, this. Well, burn that bridge. There's no, there's no coming back no, from that one. I'm no, sorry. No, there, there wasn't. So those are my two. Uh, when you said doing research to the public view, that's what popped into my head. I was like, ah, uh, yes, <laughs> being a medievalist has its perks, including being labeled a witch. Exactly. Luckily, it's no longer the 16th century, and we don't normally burn them at yes, stake for that. Very true. Which was mostly an early modern thing. <laughs> yes, we will repeat that till kingdom come. Exactly. It happened a bit in the 14th century, and then Aquinas said witches don't exist, and that put put a damper on it for almost a hundred years. <laughs> We've got to do uh, an episode at some point about like medieval witch hunting. Mm-hmm. And how the Malleus Malifawatsits was the work of, like, a lone crackpot. <gasps> yes. God, he's such... He's, like, so obviously an incel. It's so <laughs> That's the best way I've ever heard that described. I love it. Absolutely. But yeah, like, even the other Inquisitors in Germany were like, what the f***, yeah, dude? No, no, it's... no. Ugh. And then the Italians looked at that and were like, you know what we can do? Some violence about this. Of course. Of course. Okay, so to to wrap up, Adam, what is next for you? Aspirations, goals, what do you Oof. want to do? You've got these fantastic degrees, yeah. you're streaming. Do you have aspirations of, I mean, a doctorate? Or, like, what do you want to do? What's what next? What do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I've only been getting that question for the last 26 years. Oh, I feel that one. Yep, but I mean, right, if the, a doctorate comes around and things work, uh, I'm not opposed to going back into, like, pure academia, either in pure history or historical reception or digital media studies. But right now, also, one of the things I'm finding super fulfilling is just continuing to make stuff on the internet, right? But we're finally at a point, right, where certainly is not sustainable, let's be very clear. As successful as the channel has been these last few months, um, I've had the most successful channel month ever, and it has net me less than minimum wage. Let's just be very clear in terms of uh, doing this full-time, not really on the table, barring uh, the extremely generous donor appearing out of the ether. If you are said generous donor, please be in touch. Yeah, man. Call us first. Otherwise- we, we, want, we want patrons <laughs> back. That's something that I want back. <laughs> Yup, I know, right? Early modern patronage systems, it would be yeah. perfect. We're so qualified for it. Why did we ever stop that? But, also, right, continuing to work in heritage spaces, doing exhibit work, some combination of there. It's not going to be the most um, dramatic and wealthy life ever, but making things for people to enjoy is something that's incredibly fulfilling and... Run as long as I can possibly make it work. I'm going to be over on Twitch making new games. The good thing about doing video games specifically is that the game industry doesn't slow down. True. There's been games. There's been games I've been meaning to play for two years now that I haven't gotten to because they keep releasing new games that I have to play instead. <laughs> and it's just it's. I'll joke that I need them to chill, but also I need to please don't chill. Please keep releasing new games. It's how I like do intellectually fulfilling things. So yeah, I mean, as far as it goes, I'll continue to be on Twitch and YouTube eventually, and just continuing to make stuff, build contacts, getting people on, continuing to, like, 
care a little bit too much about historical games and trying to make sure that they keep doing interesting, fun things. Well, you are always welcome on the Maniculum whenever you want to talk about anything of your choosing. Thank you so much for for coming on. And for those of you who are interested, please do check Adam out on Ludo History on Twitch. Is there any other social media, any other way people can contact you, get in touch? I mean, right, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch. I've at some point made content on all three of those. Twitter is imploding, so I'm also currently on Mastodon, but until the ship is fully sunk, we're going to be there. Also, Discord pretty easy to find on the internet as it turns out so the little historians yes you've got a fantastic history community on your discord so definitely check that out yep the little historians discord's always open as long as you subscribe to the vague vision of be kind to each other and like let people be like things yeah yeah all right 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 on thank you so much adam thank you both so much for having me this has been an absolute delight Awesome. All right. And we will wrap it up there. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. When my sister saw the first trailer for Pentiment, was like, this is designed for Adam, right? And I was like, it's designed for me and Josh and, and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um.